0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. I trust you're well today, and uh, it is good to gather with you again in this way. Uh, trust and pray that you're uh, that you're well, that your family is well, and that uh, it is well with your soul this morning. Again, I just want to welcome those who may be tuning in for the first time this morning. Very, very uh, good to have you, and we trust that this will be of some value to you and your faith. We've been praying for you, and in fact, we've been praying for all of you as we've um, come together for this morning's service. Uh, If you will, by the way, what great news about James and Angela. Just celebrate with them and uh, rejoice in God with them, and so excited for this new uh, addition to their family. Excited also for our time in the Scripture today, so if you'll take your Bible, please, and meet me, in Acts chapter 26, Acts 26. This week I've been thinking about my faith journey, what is traditionally called a personal testimony, or what I've uh, heard more recently, my God story, Uh, basically the story of God's involvement in my life, specifically uh, how God rescued me from the perilous path I once lived, uh, brought me into right relationship with Himself and others, then placed me on a new and better path that has truly directed the course of my life for the past 30 plus years. And I've been thinking about these things because Acts chapter 26 includes the faith journey of the Apostle Paul. At least it does in a broad way. If you've been with us in our study of Acts, you know that this is the fifth in a series of five defenses in which Paul is having to explain his faith in Jesus. And I believe that what we have here is the most effective of the five, the most powerful, because it is the most personal. Essentially, Paul shares his God story in this chapter Unsurprisingly, it is the longest of his speeches found in the book of Acts. As Paul uh, appears before King Herod Agrippa II, a Jewish king, he defends his faith simply by telling the story of his own experience. So, as we walk through this chapter together, I want you to be thinking about your God's story. About how it parallels Paul's in many ways, and I want you to look for those, those points of commonality because, as with the Apostle Paul, the greatest, most persuasive explanation of faith in God is a life transformed by Jesus. So I want to pray, and then I want us to read the whole of this chapter together. Uh, let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for our time in the Scripture this morning. We want to thank you for the opportunity we have to come together in this way. And we just simply ask that as we open our Bible today, would you open us to its truth? And would you speak to us, God? Would you give us ears to hear what you want to say to us? Would you give us hearts that are ready to receive what you want to provide for us? And then would you help us to live accordingly? And so we thank you for this time again in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and Turned to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people. And to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So once again, Paul found himself in a crowded hall where he was expected to defend his faith. And when the time came, he began with just a brief tip of the cap to Agrippa saying in verse 2 how he sincerely appreciated the chance to appear before the king because Agrippa, being Jewish, was already familiar with Jewish customs, culture. In other words, unlike Festus and Felix and Lysias in earlier chapters who came from a Roman background, Paul and Agrippa were on the same page culturally, and understood the same customs and points of controversy. What follows then are three basic components to Paul's defense. There is Paul's life before meeting Jesus, Paul's conversion to Jesus, then Paul's life because of Jesus. And he began at the beginning by sharing his story, the story of his past, the gist of who he was before he met Jesus. This is verses 4 through 11. From a young age, he was known by his fellow Jews, widely known as a religious young man. He was very strict in his practice of Jewish religion, so strict that he lived among them as a Pharisee, which was the strictest party within Judaism at the time. The Pharisees, at their best... Obeyed God's law with meticulous, heartfelt attention. They valued the law, upheld the law, defended the law. At their worst, though, they sometimes gave the mere appearance of obedience when in truth their hearts were far from God. But not Paul. Paul was sincere in his strictness. He was serious about his religion and he took it seriously. It it genuinely mattered to him. And his countrymen knew this. Paul had developed a reputation, even as a youth, of being zealous and eager in his obedience to the Jewish Scriptures. And he shared the same hope as the Jews. The shared hope of a coming Messiah who would rescue and redeem their people. The hope of a Savior who would restore them to God and and put the world right again. The hope of better, a better life, a better future. Because after all, isn't that the point? Isn't that why we meet even today? That which brings us together today as a church, what unites us as a church, isn't it this fundamental hope of something more and better? We have hope that there is more to this world and our life in it. As great as our past may or may not be, as great as our present may or may not be, we hope for an immeasurably greater future, don't we? Not hope like like I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow or I hope I find a good parking spot at the game, but the kind of hope described in the Bible where tomorrow's certainty reaches back and informs today's circumstance. That's why Paul says in verse 7 that his fellow Jews still worship night and day, because like him, they share the same basic hope. But the difference between his and theirs, and this makes all the difference, is that Paul had come to see that all of God's messianic promises are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ he met the resurrected Jesus, which we'll see in a bit, and this changed everything for him. Before that, though, he opposed Jesus, vehemently opposed Jesus. This is his testimony in verses 9 through 11. He opposed even the very name of Jesus in the very heart of Jerusalem, in plain view of his fellow Jews, many of whom now accused him of apostasy. In fact, he received permission and authority from the chief priests themselves to attack and imprison anyone who followed Jesus. And when the time came to decide their fate, whether to live or die, he always voted for death. He talks about how he punished them often. And in raging fury... He chased and persecuted Christians even to foreign cities in regions beyond Jerusalem, so strongly opposed to Christ. Paul wanted to eliminate every trace of faith in Christ. And some of you were like that too. At best, you were indifferent to Jesus but even worse, some of you, some of you hated him. And you hated those who followed him. And if hate is too strong of a word, at a, at a minimum, you barely tolerated him. And, I, and you know I'm right. Just think about who you were before you met Jesus and who you are today. Or who you are today if you don't yet know Him in a personal way. Maybe you're tuning in today through the invite of a friend. and You didn't want to offend, so here you are. Or for some odd reason that even you can't explain. Maybe you just stumbled upon our, our church service this morning and you're not sure why. Because truth be told, you have little interest in Jesus. Maybe you're even opposed to him and those who follow him, they irritate you. Those Christians, those irritating Christians, they irritate you. And if the decision was yours, you'd like to eliminate as much Jesus talk as you possibly can. And I just want to say that if that's you today, you're not alone. And in fact, you're in very, very good company you're in the exact same boat, you have the exact same mindset as the Apostle Paul before he came to understand who Jesus is and the transformation Jesus brings. And as Paul continued to share his story, he moves from his life before Christ to his encounter with Christ. The encounter itself is recorded in chapter 9. And on two separate occasions, Paul has referenced the experience, first in chapter 22 and here again in chapter 26. He was heading to Damascus that day, a city located about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. He'd been authorized by the chief priests to find and arrest anyone with allegiance to Jesus. So we're told back in chapter 9 how he was breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. But suddenly and without expectation, the entire course of his life changed in an instant. Dramatically. It was midday And though the sun was at its highest and brightest, a light from heaven shone even brighter, overwhelming him and everyone who was with him that day. And out from the light came a voice, Saul. Saul, Saul was his given name before he became the apostle Paul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? Now, as you may know, goads were tools used by farmers to prod oxen sometimes an an ox, not wanting to be prodded in that way, would kick against the goad. And when they did, the farmer would use the goad more forcefully as a show to the oxen that kicking against the goads was futile, futile and only made it harder for them. That's what Jesus was communicating in that moment, that Saul's opposition to him was futile. "'Who are you, Lord?' Saul wondered aloud." I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, he came to realize that Jesus identifies with his people in such a, an intensely personal way. He is in them and they are in him, that any attack on them is an attack on him. And I just don't want us to miss what's happening here because this really gets to the heart of the Christian gospel. How amazing is this grace that compels Jesus, the divine Son of God, to reach and initiate relationship with His enemies. Though Paul consistently opposed Jesus and the name of Jesus and the people of Jesus, Jesus went to Paul with mercy and salvation in full measure. Such is the love of God towards sinners like us. Rise and stand, soul, continued Jesus, because I'm saving you. I'm sanctifying you. And I'm sending you as a servant and witness to the things you've seen and heard today. And I've got more to show you, more to reveal and demonstrate, and you're going to witness to those things too. Today I'm going to rescue you. I'm rescuing you from the bondage of empty religion and human philosophy, from the inadequacy of Jew and Gentile alike. Instead, you will go to them to help them see and turn and receive the very same grace you are given today. And just like that, Paul was converted to Christ and commissioned to service. He met Jesus up close and personal and it changed the entire trajectory of his life. You know, true conversion, true conversion always involves a change like this, a genuine transformation from old to new. From the old you to the new you. There's a regeneration that occurs. What the Bible calls the new birth, a rebirth of sorts. There's the person you were before meeting Jesus and the person you are Afterward. And so, what's your Damascus Road experience? Has there been a time in your life like this? Granted, you may not have experienced a visible light or an audible voice from heaven as Paul did, but is there a time you can point to when your understanding of Jesus changed dramatically when your heart was captured by God and you began to trust and follow Christ? I want you to look again at verse 18. I believe in this verse we find three distinct characteristics of true conversion It says there, Jesus says there, I am sending you, he said to Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now I take that to mean that to be a Christian you must see. You must have your eyes opened. You must turn That is, you must move from one domain to another. In this case, from darkness to light and from an earthly mentality, an earthly kingdom, an earthly perspective dominated by the devil himself to the kingdom of God. And and third, you must receive. You must take hold of the forgiveness and cleansing that God offers in Jesus. You must see. Paul was blinded by that light physically. He lost his physical sight. But in actuality, for the first time ever, he was made to see. Like the blind man healed by Jesus in John chapter 9 who said, though I was blind, now I see. That's what happens in the spiritual sense to, to every person who is born into Christ. Your eyes are opened to the reality of Jesus and the wonder of saving grace. And once you see this reality, you're faced with the decision to turn from darkness to light, from Satan to God. This is repentance. Repentance is a change of mind and heart that leads to changed behavior. Repentance isn't simply feelings of regret or remorse or shame or embarrassment or apology. It's much more than that. It's more than simply saying, I'm sorry. It's a willful act to turn from your way of life to the way of life that Jesus sets before you. Seeing and turning is receiving. It's receiving God's forgiveness. It's having the guilt of your sins removed, which you cannot do on your own. It is a gift. It's being cleansed and set apart by God. it's, It's to be sanctified and welcomed into a community of people who have received the same undeserved kindness. It's welcomed by God into His family, the church. And so in Paul's case, the great persecutor of the church became a member of the church who spent the rest of his life proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Christ. Which leads to the third part of Paul's story. We've considered Paul's life before Jesus and his conversion to Jesus, but what about his life because of Jesus, or his post-conversion life? Well, as he says in short, he became a man on a mission. By his own testimony in verses 19 through 29, Paul's driving purpose from that point forward was to tell as many people about Jesus as he could. First in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all Judea, among both Jewish and non-Jewish people, both religious and the irreligious, he called for repentance and faith. This was the very reason he was on trial and having to defend his faith. But God was his help as he attests. So he continued sharing the message of good news, teaching what God's word has always promised that the Christ would suffer for our sins. He'd die for our sins, the death our sins deserve. But death could not keep him, for he raised from the dead to bring new life to people everywhere, regardless of social status, both small or great, small and great regardless of social status or ethnic background, both Jew and Gentile. Even in court, love this, even in court that very day, Paul couldn't contain himself. Even then and there, notice, he called the king himself to repentance and faith. And Agrippa said to Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? To which Paul replied, not only you, but all who hear me this day, may they become like me. May they become like me. Except for these change, chains. Now when I was not far out of high school, Gatorade came out with a marketing campaign featuring uh, Michael Jordan that urged us to be like Mike. You remember that? By the way, the... Uh, the ESPN docuseries on Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in that era is just so good. And I remember watching much of that footage in, in real time as it was actually happening. It kind of a wake-up call when you consider how long ago it seems. But in those days, everyone wanted to be like Mike. Everybody wanted to be Jordan everyone because Michael Jordan was the best basketball player in the world and many believe he's the best ever and apparently all you need is Gatorade to become like him but here in Acts 26 it's not be like Mike that matters it's something so much better it's be like Paul In fact, we need some creatives. We need some creative people to launch a campaign, be like Paul, be saved, be sanctified, be sent. Because look at what Paul says, I would to God that all who hear me this day would become such as I am. Essentially, by sharing his God story, Paul is calling all of us to step into our own. But I know or imagine that there may be some people hearing this message today and you just aren't sure what that means, to step into your story. And in simple terms, it just means responding to Jesus positively. I have a friend who pastors a church in Arizona Two weeks ago, a man tuned in online to to view their church service like we are this morning, which my, my friend didn't know this man at the time. He'd never met or talked with the man. The man had never attended his church prior to that Sunday, never tuned in prior to that Sunday. But on that Sunday, my friend happened to be preaching on your God story, and the man direct messaged him later that evening to say that he wasn't sure he had a story. At least not before then, but now he does. Because on that Sunday, April 19th, 2020, God spoke to that man through that message and called him into following Jesus. And if that resonates with you, may I ask, how do you respond to Jesus this morning? Kevin DeYoung observes three very distinct but common Responses in this passage that I find very, very helpful. There is the response of the scoffer, the response of the sidestepper, and the response of the one who finally surrenders. The scoffer. Are you a scoffer? Like Festus in verse 24. Paul, you're out of your mind. Stop with all this Jesus talk. Or are you a sidestepper, like Agrippa in verse 28, answering the clear call to faith with smokescreen questions just because you don't want to stop and consider the truth? Or are you finally ready to surrender your life to Jesus, as Paul did, and therefore live to the fullest, as God intends. Could it be that your God story is beginning right now, right in these very moments? Like Paul, your spiritual eyes have been opened, opened to see your helplessness, your own helplessness apart from God, as well as the help that God offers in Christ. And so would you turn? I'm asking, would you turn What's keeping you from turning to receive from Jesus the new life that God has made available? I have one last thought before we close. I titled this message The Gift of a God Story because your life in Christ is God's gift to you. It is a gift to you. But it's also a story you can gift to others. So to those of us who already follow Jesus today, know that we can be like Paul too, just by sharing our story with those around us. By sharing the story of God's involvement in your life, you become a tool in God's hands to help shape the lives of others. After all, think about the many people who have influenced your story over the years and then just allow your thoughts to wander as you think about the influence you can have on the people whose stories are still being written. The Bible talks about Being ready to give a reason for the hope in you. And what can be more ready and more readily available than simply sharing your own experience of God's saving love? Consider your life before Christ, consider your conversion to Christ, consider your life because of Christ. Because as with the Apostle Paul, the greatest, most persuasive explanation of faith in God is a life transformed by Jesus. Amen.